Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now let's get over to the chief economist at KPMG. Constance Hunter joins us with her take on the jobs report and the economy. Um, Constance, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to get your take. I wonder, first off, what you think, what you thought of the numbers, 531,000, better than the street was looking for, better than uh, the whisper number as well. And we had wages up, although not faster than inflation, as the president said earlier, 4.9%, which is you know, better than a stick in the eye, as my stockbroker always tells me. Yeah, well, uh, I, I agree with you. It's uh, it's a strong report, and, and it shows broad-based job gains. So when we look at things like the diffusion index, right, we see it at a, at a, at a high, uh, and it, it shows that employers are adding workers. We also saw some things which might seem counterintuitive at first. For example, we saw hourly, uh, weekly hours worked go down slightly, and this has been uh, at an all-time high after the pandemic because workers are, employers are having difficulty finding workers. So they're taking the workers they do have and, and adding more hours onto them. And those are not necessarily hours that all those workers want. So it, when we take it in, in total, it's a very good sign. We have momentum. We have manufacturing jobs coming back, especially in autos. We have leisure and hospitality jobs coming back. So overall, a great report. And it suggests we're, we're the speed bump from the Delta variant right. that we saw in the third quarter is is past us Constance, for, for the time being. Forgive me because I'm a little bit of the perma bear here at Bloomberg. And this labor force participation rate, yes, it's stable, but it's still not moving. <laughs> so, you know, how do we get that number to start making some gains? You know, I'll use Mohammed Alarian's term here and, and say, you know, it was a disappointment. Yeah. Well, so it, what we saw uh, and what I looked at was the also the female labor force participation, which um, went up two-tenths of a percentage point. But we have a considerable sticking point here, and this is that we still have 10% fewer child care workers than prior to the pandemic. Um, and this creates knock-on effects, right, because if you can't find child care, you're, you yourself then – may not be in the labor force because you have to be home taking care of children. Between 6 to 8% of the labor force has children under the age of 6. Um, and so so this creates knock-on problems. And the question is, when do those child care workers go back or do they go back? Have they started to look for other jobs? Will, will they not fully go back until children under the age of 6 are vaccinated? Will they not fully go back until we have, you know, really um, – widespread remediation if you if you catch COVID, for example, like this Pfizer product that was announced this morning. Um, and I think what we're seeing is that this pandemic in the rearview mirror is something we keep expecting to happen in the next month, in the next quarter, and the uh, virus keeps coming back. And it is it is where we see these sort of persistent problems in labor force participation and in the ability of the economy to completely recover, and not just here, but but globally. Constance, today is my birthday. I know. Happy birthday, Matt. Thank you. I'm getting older. I'm getting old. I'm, I'm four 12-year-olds But today. also cooler. Uh, thank you. Uh, and it makes me think about the older people as well. 55-plus um, in labor participation is not 
climbing back to the pre-pandemic levels. I think part of that is, and I know a lot of people who have been able to retire a little earlier than they thought they would, um, they didn't feel like dealing and their 401ks did really well. Are we, is that part of what we're seeing a little bit of a structural change? So yeah, there was a great paper presented at Jackson Hole this year that addresses sort of this issue of retirement and participation and what happens during recessions and then what happens during recoveries and expansions. And so the longer the expansion, the more likely it is some of those people who are retired or did retire temporarily come back to the labor force. Um, and, that, and that depends on, the, on the, the length of the expansion and the variety of uh, opportunities available, as well as people's personal circumstances. So we think that eventually that participation rate does start to return. But you bring up a good point. The, the probability of people over the age of 55 returning is lower than the possibility of prime age workers who say they're retired returning. And, and it, it does bring us to this sort of long-term uh, so-called deficit of consumption, which is one of the reasons why we've had the disinflation and deflation of the last several decades. And one of the reasons that people think that inflation is transitory, I'm going to use the T word, and if oh, I can no. just say <sighs> transitory is state-dependent, not time-dependent. So the state that the transitory inflation is dependent upon is COVID. The problem is that state, COVID, is lasting much longer than people anticipated. So I, I also want to switch gears here a little bit and talk about equality. That's a, that's a great point, though. Let's, I mean, just, you want to marinate. Just, Let's marinate. <laughs> no, I just want to li linger on that for a second because I haven't heard that, and that makes a lot of sense. Being transitory Thank is state-dependent and not time-dependent. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, I was – um, having a discussion with Anna Edwards this morning about our fossil fuel use. And she said, yes, the president wants OPEC to pump more, but this is just for the short term until, you know, to bridge this period until we can get um, into more renewables use. And I think that's a pretty good comparison. Um, it's the state that we're in um, rather than a, a specific time, uh, a chunk of time that we that we could guess, that we could estimate. Correct. Yeah. I do want to switch gears a little bit because this number has been particularly concerning throughout this entire pandemic, and it's that unequal recovery. The idea that black unemployment is 7.9% while the rest of the country is facing, you know, an average 4.6% unemployment rate. Uh, for Hispanics, it's 5.9% still. Little or no change over the month. So why is that? And what can be done to start making these numbers more even? Mm, that's a really great question. And if you'd let me take up the rest of your show, I'll be able to <laughs> really go exactly. into all the details, um, which is to say this is, is this complex but not complex, right? And what, what we see across America is large firms like KPMG announcing initiatives to make sure that our recruiting is more diverse, right? That, that we are reaching out and, and having diverse slates of candidates to choose from, and then really being aware of biases that might cause us not to choose a more diverse slate of candidates. And, and while you can, you know, skeptics can look at this and say, ah, well, you know, that's not enough. If every firm does this on balance, you're going to see gradual shifts, I would hope, 
in in the outcomes. That's that's the goal anyway. Um, and and obviously, you know, we're we're hoping to make bold shifts. But I but I think realistically, if you look economy wide. Um, there is an awareness that this is a problem. When we don't have people, an entire group of people in our economy fully employed, we are missing out on a lot of GDP. We are yes. missing out on a lot of growth. I think, you and, know, and, and, and that's great for KPMG as well because I'm, I'm glad you bring this up too. I don't know if you know Mindy Grossman. She's a good friend of mine. If you don't, i got to take you both out for drinks. Um, she tells a story she started out at ralph lauren and then she went to nike and um, did some other stuff now i think she runs weight watchers she tells a story about being the only woman in the nike boardroom with like 20 other guys and they were asking the question how can we sell uh, more shoes to women and the entire room looked at her (laughs) you know and of course she said maybe if you got a couple more of me we could do that right because Mm-hmm. Um, diversity, it's not just for the sake of diversity. It's not just to be um, a responsible uh, civic um, citizen. It's just you can also look at it as a, as a profit driver, as a revenue growth driver. It, it, it will help to build GDP, right, because you can reach more people that way and get your product out there. Well, and if you have more people participating in the economy – and fully participating in terms of their full potential, in terms of education, you're going to have greater innovation. You're going to have greater wealth creation. You're going to have greater productivity. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous that we would systemically hold back people in our population. It just it makes no economic sense, and it, it makes no moral sense, quite frankly. Constance, always great to get your take, and I really appreciate you joining us today. Constance Hunter there is the chief economist at KPMG. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hook you up with Mindy Grossman. Maybe I'll take Shanali yeah, along as well. Yeah, why don't I get drinks invites? No, I will. <laughs> I'll bring you guys all to the club or whatever, and then I'll and then I'll just uh, set you free, and I'll I'll go do whatever. Um, thanks so much. Always great to get your take. Constance Hunter is the chief economist at KPMG talking to us about the jobs number, adding 531,000. Um, we had average hourly earnings growing 4.9% year over year. Labor participation, though, is the problem here. It's the sticking point. 61.6% was the actual number. We wanted to see 61.7%. So no growth there. We're working on it. This is Bloomberg. Now, as I said, we're going to get over to Peter Anderson right now from Anderson Capital Management. Um, He is going to give us his outlook on markets. And first off, uh, Pete, I want to get your take on the jobs number looking pretty healthy, especially the wage growth number, 4.9%, not quite the level of inflation, but it's almost there. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, yeah, that number was, uh, in a word, fantastic. And um, I don't place too much emphasis on the monthly job numbers because I do think in recovery things are very messy. And, you know, we don't hang our hats on successive data like that. But when you do get a fairly vague but improving picture of the economy in the labor market, I think it's all very positive. Let me let me ask you this. I get that you don't, uh, you know, one data point a trend does not right. make or whatever. But 
we did get some pretty amazing news from Pfizer. If their treatment can reduce hospitalizations and death by 89% in high-risk cases, is that not a game-changer? I personally do think that. I totally agree with you. I mean, this is a major announcement, I would say, equal to or maybe even greater than the vaccines themselves. And the reason I say that is, you know, there's still uh, contentions out there about anti-vaxxers, mandatory vaccinations, that kind of thing. We're all going through that this country. But if you have a treatment for this, that kind of obviates that entire tension between differing opinions about, you know, whether or not to be vaccinated, et cetera. So I do think it is probably the most major turning point in this whole messy situation we've been in for the past year and a half. You know, there were some COVID, uh, you know, stock market darlings, if you will, like Peloton, when people were, you know, staying home and working out. And now the stock today is down 30%. By the way, Paul Sweeney used to be on that thing every single day during lockdown. (laughs) And since the the last couple months, he's just been hanging his coat on it. Yeah, if I'm filling in, I've got to fill in for Paul Sweeney. And let's talk about this Peloton issue because, you know, the thing that we were seeing here with Peloton, are there other companies exposed to this kind of issue where people used it during the COVID times and now they're walking away? Well, you know, I've always said market timing based on COVID news, really, it's like standing on a trap door. I mean, we just didn't know this development. I mean, as evidenced even by today's uh, Pfizer's news. So I think it really is a foolish thing to try to time investments based solely on the way you think they will be um, attractive during a COVID lockdown. I think we're seeing that the first damaged stock, frankly, for that thesis is Peloton. We're seeing that playing out right in front of us. It's so fascinating. What what do you think about the economy uh, more generally over, say, the next year? I mean, the comps are going to get harder as we get into um, Q4, Q1, Q2. On the other hand, you got to think the supply chain is going to ease a little bit, and the labor crunch has to soften somewhat. Yeah, that's right, Matt. And you know, a lot of people think I'm maybe a mindless optimist on this, but believe me, I spend a lot of time thinking and analyzing uh, to formulate a hypothesis or an opinion. And I uh, remain bullish. I mean, I was bullish throughout this entire period, a year and a half, and I continue to stay optimistic. And I do think maybe next year, you know, we will be wringing our hands a bit saying maybe we've overshot our estimates for earnings, but what a fantastic position to be in. If that's the case, then we would be truly, I mean, I'm looking forward to worrying about that, because then we would be truly in the rearview mirror all this stuff about COVID vaccinations, COVID treatments, uh, supply chain issues, interest rates, all these things that we've been worrying about, and frankly, worrying about in the dark. I mean, this is a totally new period we've been through, right? We've never had a history like this. And so that's why I urge investors to take it a little bit in stride. You know, don't hang your, um, your opinions on the news of the day. You really do have to step back and try to uh, appreciate the mosaic that's slowly evolving as we get out of this mess. So as we get out of this mess, we, again, we're, we're still at record highs in the stock market. We've been up every day this week. Yes. Not too messy if you're fully invested, right? Yeah. So right. what do you buy now with valuations you know, this high? 
Well, you know, and, and you earlier asked, let's just finish this other point about, you know, are there other companies that might be in peril uh, a la Peloton? And I, I do think there are. There are companies that anything that investors have invested in based on this is a hot topic for lockdowns, I would stay away from. So I've never invested during that period uh, market timing based on certain industries. Instead, I, for instance, Peloton, I never uh, thought was attractive even before the uh, COVID came, and I didn't think it was attractive during, nor do I think it is attractive after. But certain other industries uh, escape that and are more attractive. Uh, let me throw out some. Data security, for instance. That's not going to be a COVID timing matter. Uh, data storage, cell phone towers, uh, anything that is less dependent on what I would call um, supply chain and more on uh, intensity of, say, software development is a pretty good place to be right now, and it probably will be the best place to be even as we come out of this COVID mess. All right, that makes uh, that makes sense. Um, data security is something that we're going to need. And healthcare is something I hear a lot uh, about, Pete. It, you know, yep. from the tech side, from the uh, REIT side, mm -hmm. from um, just a, a, a pure play investment in that, it seems like healthcare just still has a long way to go. It does, as, as it always will. And I think uh, COVID has placed a, you know, macro emphasis on that industry. I will tell you another um, industry that I've been very successful in investing is pet care pet care business, whether or not it be uh, medications for pet care, such as Zoetis, or the uh, health insurance for pets called Trupanion, uh, the health care of animals is probably even more, uh, has more potential for increase. And I think, frankly, it's simpler to analyze. You know, when you get into health care for humans, there is a whole specialization of that. And you really do almost have to have a PhD in biochemistry to understand that. But when you look at pet care, you know, the humanization of pets is a trend that mm -hmm. maybe was highlighted even more during COVID, but it's still here. It's here to stay. And as I said, when we look in the rearview mirror, that will be another industry that will be very, very attractive. For sure. I mean, you know, I remember when I was uh, reticent to get an MRI because of the costs, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, yesterday I just MRI'd my dog. He's okay. <laughs> well, that's, okay yeah. that's an excellent he, example. He, he, he's okay. I just want to make <laughs> make the point. I wasn't as worried about me as I was worried about Steve, and Steve is gonna be okay. Pete, thanks so much for joining us. Great, always great to get your intake. Really appreciate you joining us on this program. Peter Anderson is the founder of Anderson Capital Management. Now, uh, one of the things that we have made almost a central part now of our data checks and business flashes, etc., is um, crypto prices. Bitcoin right now down three quarters of 1% to 60 thousand nine hundred and eleven dollars a piece ethereum uh down just over one percent right now to four thousand four hundred and sixty seven dollars i want to talk about cryptos with scott freeman he's the co-founder and partner at jst capital talk to me first about what jst does scott what do you guys do at jst capital hey matt good to speak to you yeah we are an institutional player in the crypto space we do everything digital and service institutional investors, clients, exchanges, protocols. We've been in the business for uh, well over four years. 
So that's a that's an eternity in uh, in the crypto world. What do you think about the institutional adoption? What do you think about people making crypto part of their portfolios? How long until we get to a point where this becomes, uh, you know, as normal as holding I don't know any other commodity? Well, yeah, I think honestly we're well on our way there already. We're uh, from the retail side, it's very easy for people to get access to it these days especially with the recent launch of the ETFs and with the growth of the U.S. futures market. I think it's just uh, it just continues to grow day by day, week by week, year by year. The ETF, I think, very interesting, but it's not as uh, it's not as powerful as having a product that's backed by the underlying that buys actual Bitcoin, for example. We just get the futures and there's roll risk and a number of other things um, related to that. When, when do we get a real product that um, – you know, mom and pop investors can really sink their teeth into. You know, listen, I, that's a good point. I think, yes, the futures ETF is not as efficient as the cash-based ETF. And we would expect maybe first, second quarter next year, it's likely the SEC would get more comfortable with it. This is just an evolutionary process. Uh, the fact that the futures ETF has gone so smoothly, the world hasn't ended. Um, and I think that's a good sign more broadly. And we would expect to see more ETFs next year. We'll expect to see a cash-based Bitcoin, and we expect to see uh, ETFs as well next year. So one of the big problems um, with this investment is the volatility. You know, yesterday, um, the new mayor of New York, Eric Adams, asked to get his first few paychecks in Bitcoin, and people immediately talked about the risk associated with that. It has come down, though. Um, but do, is this kind of volatility, I mean, is it here for for years for decades when does when does when does it get um to a point where your average investor can stomach it yeah listen i think volatility at some level is all relative right the bitcoin is a very volatile asset volatilities have come down over the past few months but what we've seen in the past and what we do expect there will be periods of extreme volatility in bitcoin and in crypto and i think people should expect that i think you don't go into these assets hoping for lower volatility of course not, but it's at this point it's too volatile for um, for a risk averse investor to to get involved. Um, you know, other than just throwing a small piece at it as a punt. You know, it's more of a gamble than an investment, and that's not the case for a lot of other um, asset classes. It's a big problem. Yeah, I guess I, I, we would we would postulate a little bit differently on that. We would say, listen, if you're going to go into it, expect there will be volatility. You could be up or down 50% on a, any day-to-day, week-to-week. But for a long-term investment, for you know, a small piece of your your portfolio, or even for you know, parents or grandparents who want to set up their their children for college, things like that. We don't think it's a bad idea to put a small portion of your investment in a, as a long-term investment. We wouldn't encourage you to to speculate around this. We think long-term Bitcoin and cryptos more broadly are a good a good place to have a small percentage of your portfolio. All right, if you step back and look really long-term then, Scott, um, don't governments have uh, an interest in crushing these cryptos, you know, and especially as they come out with their own digital assets? Yeah, I think there will be regulatory or more clarity around the regulatory side going forward. I think there's already been some progress in the U.S., especially around stable coins. Um, I think that will continue to evolve. I think for those of us in the industry, we're big proponents of greater, greater regulatory clarity. 
Uh, we think lack of regulatory clarity has been um, has been an issue. We think going forward that will help. We, obviously, we hope that they're, they're disciplined about how they impose regulation. Uh, we hope it still allows people to maintain some of the exciting and, and, and new things that we think are, are bringing a lot of innovation to the space. Beyond stable coins, do you think there will be any cryptos that we can use on a daily basis, like cash? You know, I, I spent a couple of weeks back in 2013 living on Bitcoin and not using dollars, which was fun. But you can't really live that way on a regular basis, especially now as transaction times get uh, so long and um, it, it's expensive to transact with Bitcoin. Is there anything that you think people are going to be using to transact? You know, I, I think the more likely scenario is that people will be doing things on the blockchain without even knowing it. Like people are already building apps today, whether they're web browsers or apps on your phone that allow you to earn incremental revenue for just day-to-day activity. And people don't necessarily need to know that Bitcoin or crypto is behind it, but I think they'll be able to extract value from day-to-day activities where they can't do that today. And I think that's when you start really seeing the power of a blockchain and crypto. A big future in, in DeFi? Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're big believers in the space. We're, we're allocating more and more people and capital to the space, and we think we're not even in the first inning yet in DeFi. All right, Scott, great to get your thoughts. Thanks so much for joining us. Scott Freeman there, co-founder and partner at JST Capital, an institutional player in the crypto space. And, you know, we're covering this more and more. Obviously, I have been interested in it for a decade, but um, I think everyone is starting to look at quotes on Bitcoin, quotes on Ethereum. You can get it on the terminal. CRYP Go is where you can see our screen of uh, crypto, our cryptocurrency monitor. And, you know, more and more, um, you're getting ETFs. It started in Canada. Now we have the futures ETF here in the U.S. And as regulation increases, the question is, are we going to see more of these products that um, retail investors can get into, that institutional investors are going to adopt and accept? And it, it, it seems like the answer is yes, at least thus far, and we'll continue to cover it for you. This is Bloomberg. Let's get over now to the founder and CEO of a hiring firm that always gives us such incredible insight around um, these data points. We got, of course, the non-farm payrolls number. It was an addition of 531, which was better than anticipated, even better than the whisper number. And we got um, wages up 4.9%, almost uh, as much as inflation. So that's pretty good news. Tom Gimbel uh, joins us out of Chicago. Tom, let me get your take first off on the participation rate, because this is the big problem. Um, everything else looks great, but for some reason, we can't get this all-important participation rate number to budge. It's at 61.6. We were hoping to get it up to 61.7. What is keeping people out of the labor force? My belief on that is we still have the kids' problem with uh, not being, you know, now it's changed with the approval from uh, the ability to get the kids the vaccines. But with kids in school not having the vaccine, you still had parents that were on the sidelines making sure they could be home with their kids. 
if something happened with COVID in the classroom or their kid got COVID to make sure they were there. As COVID goes down, participation rate will increase. It's very confusing, right? Because on one hand, you're, you're, we're talking about kids in schools, but education was also the big laggard in terms of hiring here. What was going on? Well, I think education is, is always interesting when you have uh, the schools and the classrooms. You've got people that have moved into different areas, and, and teacher hiring will go in when there's, when there's a baby boom, so to speak, that, that we don't need excess hiring in that area right now. And there's been, uh, for lack of a better word, a glut of teachers on the market for, for a decade or so in that capacity, and it's, it's not going to be a big change there. Where we really want to see the changes in travel, in hospitality, in the service sectors, and that means that the world is getting back to normal. And when you see a jobs number like 531,000 jobs uh, last month, you got to look at it and say, this thing's working. And political affiliation aside, this is without an infrastructure bill getting passed. This is based on the decline of COVID. This is on the vaccines. People are getting back to work. Companies are continuing to hire record profits, stock market. We are in a really good situation coming out of the pandemic. Well, absolutely. And then we get this blockbuster news from Pfizer. They have a pill that they claim, at least in clinical trials, um, reduces hospitalizations and deaths in high-risk patients 89%. Now, if that's the case, Tom, is that not a game changer for the U.S. economy? Oh, it's it's like getting cholesterol medicine, you know, 50 years ago. I mean, this thing's legit. And when you get that in clinical studies that it's that big for people who have disease, older people, you've got a real fight here to, to do that. Now, the, the challenge is if that is what people gravitate towards and it doesn't allow people to keep getting the vaccine because they go, well, I'll just take the pill and it doesn't have the same effect. So I think the next thing is going to have to be for the CDC to roll out how the pill works in conjunction with the vaccine, with the booster shots, and where things are moving. But with more and more companies coming forward and being a vaccine-only environment, you're seeing the last uh, the last straw to fall, so to speak, that people are going to get the vaccine so they're not missing out on opportunities. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about this tension between vaccine mandates and workers. You know, in this Goldman study that President Biden, Marty Walsh have all pointed out, a point that Goldman makes is that 0.6% of healthcare workers left their jobs following employer vaccine mandates. Now, that's not a terribly big amount, but it is still an amount. (laughs) So how do you see this tension starting to continue to play out? Well, I think there's tensions across the board, and I think it's it's interesting, right? We've also got a situation in the labor market where the administration is saying we're going to give bigger tax breaks to union organizations for electric vehicles than non-union organizations. And I think that's what happens when you have a secretary of labor who is so union-friendly, and that's how they got, got elected to be uh, political office in Massachusetts, and that's where the legislation is going. So I think we actually have an intersection of where – uh, the rubber's going to meet the road right now with uh, the election of the Republican governor in Virginia, followed by the strong jobs numbers, is going to say people want moderation. They want respect in the in the community. If people leave the health care field, they didn't leave because they love the job and they were upset about it. They left because they don't love the job. And then there was the mandate. Right. People yeah. don't quit jobs they love because they don't want to. They feel their civil rights are being taken away. People quit jobs they hate 
and they use that as an excuse. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a pretty good um, it's a pretty good uh, theory. I think I'm going to go with that. There, as there well, was a, there was a statistic there was a statistic about a year and a half ago, and no, two years ago before COVID, and it said 68 percent of the workforce is disengaged. Okay. Yeah. That was before COVID, before remote work, before everything else. Oh, now all of a sudden you can work from home two, three, four, five days a week. Now you're engaged more? I don't think so. Now you like the fact that you don't have to commute more. Yes. You're not more engaged in the job. And that's the problem is we still have people doing jobs out of necessity yep. versus what they're passionate about. And, and those are big, bigger, deeper societal issues. Uh, amen, brother. Tom, great. Always great to get your take. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.